Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello, I'm Dr Yasmin Chan and I'm going to be speaking to you about heavy menstrual bleeding. I have no conflicts of interest to declare. So the aims of today's talk are to define heavy menstrual bleeding, the assessment, investigation, and both the medical and surgical approaches to management. Um, we'll look at what would uh, be an indication for specialist referral and apply this knowledge to some clinical scenarios. The take home messages are that heavy menstrual bleeding is a common problem which affect, affects women of reproductive age. The treatment of this condition is really determined by the cause of bleeding, uh, the background medical history of the patient, what the women's fertility preservation requirements are, and the patient's preference for treatment. So heavy menstrual bleeding is common. 25% of women of reproductive age will be affected. And the definition has changed over time. We used to define menorrhagia as 80 mils or more of blood loss with a period, but we're now uh, trying to define the problem more in the context of a woman's lifestyle. So we define it now as excessive menstrual blood loss, which interferes with the woman's physical, emotional, social and material quality of life. And it can occur alone or it can be co occur in combination with other symptoms. So when we're asking a woman about the bleeding, we ask them in a way that they can describe. So how often are they changing their pad or tampon? Do they need to change that overnight? Are they passing clots? Uh, do they have to wear double sanitation, like a pad and a tampon, or two pads, or a menstrual cup and a pad? Um, is the bleeding so heavy it stains onto their clothing or bedding? Does the bleeding last for a prolonged period, so more than eight days? Is it starting to impact on their activities of daily living? And is there uh, ongoing effect from the blood loss, resulting in anemia or iron deficiency, making them tired or short, short of breath? It's important to note that uh, other abnormal bleeding patterns, such as that occurring as postcoital bleeding or intermenstrual bleeding, are not classified as heavy menstrual bleeding and should be investigated separately. Assessing blood loss has become a little bit more tricky for us in the modern day. Uh, we used to just ask about pads and tampons, but there's a few different devices that people, women, that women will use to manage their period, such as menstrual cups or period underwear. So for example, a regular tampon will hold about 15 mils of fluid, whereas a menstrual cup can hold anywhere between 15 and 50 mils of fluid. So it's a little bit more difficult to get a grasp on the blood loss. So once we have an idea of the menstrual pattern and the, the amount of bleeding, we have to find out a bit more about our patient. Is there any possibility of pregnancy? Are there any associated symptoms like pain, pressure, fatigue, which would suggest anemia or iron deficiency? Um, where is the woman in her reproductive life? Is she planning a pregnancy or wanting to preserve her fertility? Background gynaecological history, so cervical screening test results, STI screen, and are there any symptoms of an underlying ble bleeding disorder? Is there any evidence of hormonal dysfunction to suggest polycystic ovarian syndrome or thyroid dysfunction? Uh, and what are the risk factors for this woman having endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer? We need to know the general medical health of our patient 
and what their family history is in case there's any uh, red flags there which may suggest an underlying bleeding disorder or hereditary cancer pattern. And overall what we're trying to do is get uh, a window into the impact of the bleeding on the woman's quality of life. So after our history, we always will examine the patient. We examine them generally for any signs of anemia or iron deficiency. We're going to palpate the abdomen and pelvis for any signs of abnormal masses or pain. And then we inspect the genital tract. So we look at the external genitalia and then inspect the vagina and the cervix with a speculum, looking for any masses or unusual features which may account for the bleeding. Laboratory tests would include cervical screening tests, sexually transmitted infection screen, uh, assessment of haemoglobin and iron levels, excluding or including pregnancy, checking thyroid function, and perhaps running a hormone essay if there's any indication from the history. Um, as sometimes we'll consider performing tests to look for an underlying bleeding disorder, uh, but uh, this depends on the history. Every woman will probably require a pelvic ultrasound and we prefer this to be done between day five and 10 of the menstrual cycle to have the most accurate ass assessment of the endometrium. And we would like a transvaginal examination performed with transabdominal if possible. And this way we have an idea of the status of the ovaries, the uterus and the endometrium. If we wanna look further into the uterine cavity or endometrium, we may investigate with a saline infusion histogram or a hysteroscopy where we can directly look into the uterine cavity. If we're concerned about the endometrium, we'll try and biopsy it. An outpatient biopsy would be a papel endometrial biopsy, or we can do a curette at the time of hysteroscopy. There's pros and cons for each of these um, procedures, and you just need to tailor them according to the patient. So a papel endometrial biopsy is something you can do in your clinic and doesn't require general anaesthetic. The NICE guidelines actually recommend we biopsy all women with abnormal bleeding over the age of 40. It's good for generalised thickening of the endometrium, but not so good for detection of specific focal lesions like polyps or fibroids. A hysteroscopy with biopsy will generally require a general anaesthetic. Um, the benefit of this is that you can not only make your diagnosis, but you can treat it at the same time. It doesn't give you any information on what's happening with the myometrium. A sonohistogram is also an office procedure used um, in combination with ultrasound um, and it's quite good at really looking at the uterine cavity and endometrium for specific lesions. Here is an ultrasound of a normal uterus, it's antiverted. Uh, we can see normal myometrium and the calipers are over a normal appearing endometrium. Uh, there's no abnormal vascularity and no disruption of the line of the endometrium to suggest a focal lesion. This is a similar uh, picture with the two images up the top showing your standard B-mode ultrasound of the uterus. The three images at the bottom are from a saline infusion sonohistogram where about five mils of normal saline fluid is instilled into the uterine cavity, allowing distension of the cavity and we can see the outline of the uterine walls uh, for, and which would allow us to identify a focal lesion such as a polyp or fibroid. And we can also see the shape of the uterine cavity in case there's some other structural problem uh, or focal mass such as a fibroid pushing into the cavity. A hysteroscopy 
um, involves direct visualisation of the uterine cavity with a camera. And uh, you can see in the next images, uh, images from a recent hysteroscopy, uh, where we see in the top left-hand corner a normal patient's right ostea, and the top right-hand corner is the patient's normal left ostea, and normal fundal walls of the uterus, and then the bottom images are uh, more global pictures of the uterine cavity as we, as we withdraw the camera. Here's another ultrasound of a woman. Uh, and we can see it looks a little different to previous. The endometrium is quite thin in this case, but the posterior uterine wall is thickened with some heterogeneity. And this would suggest the presence of adenomyoma. So causes for abnormal bleeding, we tend to divide it up into structural and non-structural causes. So structural issues include things like polyps, fibroids, adenomyosis, malignancy or hyperplasia. The non-structural causes really are caused by abnormal bleeding patterns um, and hormonal issues. Sometimes it's related to some of the treatments we would instigate, such as progestogen treatment. It's really important to exclude conditions like endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. The type of hyperplasia we're particularly concerned about is hyperplasia with atypia. And the reason being is that there can be a small occult cancer hiding in the remaining endometrial tissue that hasn't been sampled. And there can also be, um, there is also an increased risk of the changes progressing to a carcinoma over time. The women who are at increased risk um, of these issues include women over the age of 45, some people say over, over the age of 40, women who have problems with obesity or, or comorbidities, including diabetes and hypertension, nulliparous women, a history of abnormal hormone functions, such as in the polycystic ovarian syndrome cases, any woman who's had a prolonged period of unexposed estrogen therapy, we're seeing this less commonly, fortunately, a woman who's had tamoxifen treatment previously, and a significant family history of endometrial, ovarian or bowel cancer. There are certain conditions like hereditary non-polyposis, colon cancer syndrome, and DNA mismatch repair gene abnormalities, which can increase the risk of cancer in these women. Any women who's not responding to treatment uh, over at least a minimum of six months really needs further uh, investigation. As mentioned, tamoxifen does increase the risk of endometrial cancer by around two to three times. And we know that this is probably related to the duration of treatment. So increased uh, treatment time increases the risk. So when we've got that all under consideration, um, we can now move on to management. And that's divided up into medical and surgical. So I think most uh, doctors are familiar with things like tranexamic acid, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, replacing iron if the iron's low, and then hormonal treatments. Surgery is really directed at the focal lesion, um, if, if it's present, or we can look at doing an endometrial ablation or hysterectomy. So non-steroidals, anti-inflammatory medication and tranexamic acid will reduce blood loss. They don't affect the hormone function. Uh, one of the most popular uh, and effective treatment methods is the levonorgestrel intrauterine system. And it, we know it's going to reduce the blood loss for women in about 80 to 90% of cases effectively. Um, 
We can use it in women in combination with oestrogen therapy as well. And that's particularly useful for women in the perimenopause who are fluctuating between heavy, heavy periods and then times of oestrogen uh, deficiency, such as hot flushes. Everyone's familiar with the levonorgestrel intrauterine system. And we know that 80% of women who don't have any underlying pathology can avoid more uh, aggressive surgi surgical intervention um, with the use of the marina. The low-dose pill is also quite commonly used um, and, it's, and it's beneficial as it will regulate a cycle. And again, it's quite useful in the perimenopause because the estrogen component will um, address any menopausal symptoms like hot flushes, mood problems and things like that. Adolescents are a unique group uh, and they require specific consideration. Usually the heavy menstrual bleeding is related to inovitary cycles and this will uh, spontaneously improve after about three years from menarche and that's because the hypothalamic pituitary axis will mature. This is also the age group where a bleeding disorder may first present. So if there's any suspicion, um, it's worth referring to a haematologist for further investigation. These disorders are quite hard to diagnose and do require specialist uh, assessment. A lot of uh, young adolescents will have, will will have an oral contraceptive pill as a treatment option. I would just caution using this in the very young adolescents who've just started their periods. Uh, because we would like them to really achieve their pubertal development naturally so that they can achieve normal height and breast development. The levonorgestrel intrauterine systems are also really good for this age group. If you think about it, it's only one hormone, it's progestogen, and it's much lower dose than what's in the pill, and it acts locally on the target organ, which is the endometrium, without giving a high systemic dose of hormone. And this allows the patient's natural hormone levels to circulate and be effective uh, without any interference. The only downside to this particular treatment strategy is that it does require a general anaesthetic, but this is easily overcome with the, as a day surgery procedure. Once we've reduced the heavy bleeding acutely and addressed iron deficiency issues, we can look at progestogens for treatment as well. They're not so popular um, now that we have the levonorgestrel intrauterine systems because the progestogens as tablets and injections are not so well tolerated. About one in eight women will have premenstrual syndrome symptoms from them, uh, which are intolerable, such as bloating, mood swings, depression, and fluid retention. Injections with every three months with progesterone as well are a little inconvenient. And um, if you really want to have a sustained reduction in bleeding, you have to give oral progestogen for at least 21 days of the menstrual cycle to, a, to have a 50% reduction in blood loss. So once we have identified a structural problem, such as a fibroid, um, intracavity or submucosal type, or a polyp, the best method of treatment is surgical. We can also look at doing an endometrial ablation where we burn the inner lining, the endometrium, so that no longer bleeds, okay? Um, so that's an alternative treatment for women who don't want to undergo hormone treatment or if they've tried other medical management and it hasn't worked. It's contraindicated in someone with suspected or known hyperplasia or carcinoma. There's a few different ways of performing the, the, sorry, the ablation uh, and this usually comes down to surgeon's preference. Endometrial ablation um, is 
also a good treatment. About 80% of women find the reduction in blood loss satisfactory. The only problem is if it does fail, then it probably will require hysterectomy for further management and that would affect about 10 to 20% of women. Hysterectomy is definitive management. Again, it's mostly indicated when other treatments haven't worked. Um, if there's a suspicion of hyperplasia of cancer or known uh, diagnosis of such, uh, if there's really large fibroids or extensive adenomyosis. The approach to hysterectomy, either laparoscopic, abdominal or vaginal, depends on the case. So now I'd like to move on to some clinical cases where we can apply some of our knowledge. My first case is a 33-year-old woman who is para zero. She's been trying to conceive for the last two months. She attends because her periods have become very, very heavy. Although they're regular every month, um, she's now soaking a, a tampon within 20 minutes and it's particularly occurring when exercising. She's feeling very tired and run down as a result and her lifestyle is quite limited now when she has her period because she needs to be near a toilet at all times. She's otherwise a well woman with no other significant family history. Some tests were done indicating a low haemoglobin and low ferritin. The gynaecological screening tests were normal, her cervical screening tests were normal, all the other blood tests were also normal. Her transvaginal ultrasound raised the possibility of an endometrial polyp. She was started on iron replacement and tranexamic acid to acutely manage her period problem. This image is from her ultrasound. In the top right hand corner is the normal B-mone image and you can see normal myometrium but a thickened endometrium and possibly uh, some focal lesions there. It becomes much clearer when we do the saline infusion zone histogram. So after instilling the fluid, we can now quite clearly see there is a echogenic mass or masses uh, in the uterine cavity. The bottom left-hand corner shows the vascularity uh, going into the mass and the appearances are suggestive of a polyp. I think it's really helpful whenever you're considering any case or patient scenario to have a few questions in mind. And they include how heavy, how, how severe is the bleeding? And in this case, it's very severe. She's anemic and she's also going to the, soaking through a tampon in 20 minutes. Her fertility requirements are important. She's actually currently trying to fall pregnant. So whatever treatment we option we have cannot have a contraceptive effect. What is her cancer risk? Her cancer risk is probably low. Um, she has no significant flags in her personal family history. The ultrasound is also not suggestive of anything sinister. Does she require surgical intervention? Yes, she does, because we suspect she has a polyp. And her preference, her preference is the treatment that's going to sort the bleeding out and get her pregnant as soon as possible. This lady had a hysteroscopy and we can see the polyp type lesion in the uterine cavity. This was easily resected and the uterine cavity was returned to normal. Fortunately, her bleeding problems uh, improved after the surgery and she fell pregnant about three months later. The next case is for a 40-year-old woman who's had two children and her family is now complete. Uh, she reports that her periods have started to become heavy and more painful, so much so that she can't leave the house when she has a period unless she knows where the nearest toilet is. She also has some premenstrual symptoms, but she's otherwise well with no significant family history. 
She's had some improvement so far with tranexamic acid. She's unable to take anti-inflammatory medication as it gives her gastritis. This is her ultrasound. We see a retroverted uterus this time. The endometrium looks quite thin, but there's a focal mass at the uterine fundus with some heterogeneity, and it appears to be a fibroid. This is classified as a intramural sub, probably intramural fibroid. There's also a little fibroid in the anterior uterine wall, which you can see in the bottom right-hand corner. Neither of the fibroids affect the endometrium or uterine cavity. So back to our questions. How severe is the bleeding? It's severe. It's causing impact on her lifestyle. She can't go anywhere without knowing where the toilet is. What are the fertility requirements? She's completed her family, so this opens up the management options for her. What is the cancer risk? The cancer risk is low. She doesn't have any red flags in her personal medical history. The ultrasound is not suggestive of a uh, problem with the endometrium. What is the surgical intervention required? Probably none, as the fibroids are not affecting the cavity. So we best proceed with medical management with her initially. And this suits her preference, as she's a busy working mum who doesn't have time to have uh, a long period of recovery from an operation. I think you're all familiar with fibroids. The most important ones that affect uh, bleeding are usually intracavity or submucosal fibroids. However, intramural or subserosal fibroids can affect bleeding as well. This lady had a levonorgestrel intrauterine system inserted and it worked quite well. Her, her bleeding became quite light and sporadic. Her ongoing problem though was premenstrual syndrome issues. So she was also started on the oral contraceptive pill containing normogestrel, acetate and estradiol. And on this type of pill with the intrauterine system in place, she could take it continuously, skipping the sugar tablets. And hence she had a very steady state of hormone, um, which stabilised her mood. Uh, she felt very well in this combination of treatment and was happy going forward. Our third case is a 15-year-old woman. Uh, she started her periods 18 months ago. Her periods have always been irregular, um, but now they're very heavy, flooding onto her clothing and bedding at night and associated with pain. She's had good pubertal development, currently a stage 10 or 4 breast development. She's tried a number of different pills, um, but they're not really helping. And the problem for her is that she's missing at least two or three days of school every month uh, with her period. She's had a transabdominal ultrasound, which is normal. Uh, we're not usually able to do transvaginal scanning in this age group, and the yield of any pathology is very low uh, in this age group as well. She's anemic with low iron. Bleeding screen has been normal. She can't swallow large tablets, and hence she hasn't taken transexamic acid. Again, back to our questions. The bleeding severity is high. She's missing at least two or three days of school a month, which is very important um, in this age group. Her fertility requirements are uh, currently that she's not trying to fall pregnant, but we need to preserve fertility as she's only young. The cancer risk is low. Does she require surgical intervention? Well, we haven't identified a surgically treatable condition, so not as such and her preference is least invasive mo mode of treatment. She had a levonorgestrel intrauterine system inserted under uh, general anaesthetic. It was just a very brief day surgery procedure and she only missed one day of school. 
You do have to warn this age group that there can be quite a lot of heavy cramping and bleeding for around six to eight weeks after insertion because they don't cope very well with these symptoms. So this young girl did very well with the intrauterine system after three months and she was very happy and returned to school normally and started participating in all her normal extracurricular and sporting activities. So although we love um, how effective the 11 adjustable intrauterine system is, it doesn't work in every case. And so when would it not work? When there's a structural lesion. This is a picture of an intracavity uterine fibroid. This is the fibroid being resected. Um, it is re removed in a piecemeal fashion as we can't grasp the whole fibroid and take it out in one piece. And you can see the surgeon doing an apple core type resection on this fibroid. The bottom right hand corner is now a normal uterine cavity after the fibroids have been completely resected. Also very large fibroids may not respond very well to medical treatment alone. So a fibroid that extends from the mucosal layer through the entire myometrium distorting the serosa do not often respond well to levonorgestrel intrauterine systems or, or other medical management and they may need removal. This is a large posterior wall fibroid um, which caused significant bleeding. This lady required a laparoscopic myomectomy. You can see the uterus in the top left hand corner uh, prior to any resection and then the following images are the fibroid shelling out of the uterine, uterine wall and then the bottom left hand image is the closure of the wound on the uterine wall. So any woman who had this type of procedure would be recommended for caesarean section for a future pregnancy to minimise the risk of uh, myometrial or uterine wall rupture during pregnancy. Our next case is a 46 year old woman who works as an executive assistant. She has had no children, uh, she's not planning on having any. She presents with heavy menstrual bleeding. Her haemoglobin is very low at 76 and she has low iron. Her periods have always been very heavy, but they have started becoming heavier. She has had an ultrasound which shows a very large, massively fibroid uterus. The endometrium wasn't clearly visualised along the entire length um, due to the presence of the fibroids. And this is very common with fibroids. It makes uh, visualising any the other structures, other pelvic structures, including the endometrium ovaries, quite difficult. She prefers conservative management if possible, uh, as she's quite busy with work. This is an ultrasound picture from her, and the uterus is very, very enlarged. It measures 17, around 17 weeks size length, uh, and expanded by a very large fundal fibroid, as well as other fibroids scattered throughout the uterine walls. So we need a management plan. So we go back to our uh, questions. How severe is her bleeding? Her bleeding is severe. Uh, Hemoglobin is very low, but it's obviously um, a long-standing chronic issue as she's not very symptomatic and that fits with the history. But we do need to do something about her blood loss. Her fertility requirements now and in the future. Well, she hasn't had any children, but isn't planning on any. Uh, so that allows us to perform surgical management as required. Her cancer risk, there's not a lot of red flags in the history, but as we can't really assess the endometrium, there's, I would say it was a moderate risk and we need to investigate further. What surgical intervention, if any, is required? 
I think at least we need to start with a hysteroscopy to check the uterine cavity. If there's any lesion or fibroid pressing into the cavity, we may be able to address that. And as per her preference, we'll start with the least invasive treatment methods first. So she was started on tranexamic acid to reduce the blood loss initially and given a nine infusion. So this is a picture from her hysteroscopy showing a normal uterine cavity with no endometrial lesion. Uh, the venogestrel intrauterine system was also inserted at the time of the procedure. Unfortunately, she had heavy bleeding ongoing and the eye intrauterine system actually fell out. Then it was discussed what she wanted to do and although hysterectomy was probably the most definitive treatment for her, she didn't have time to take off work so we proceeded with an endometrial ablation. But unfortunately, despite good coverage from the ablation, she still bled heavily. In the end, she did require the, the, the hysterectomy and she had a laparoscopic hysterectomy, which went well. Uh, and three months later, she was actually quite happy she'd had it and she couldn't believe the difference in her lifestyle without these heavy periods every month. This is a picture from the laparoscopy. In the top left-hand corner is a very large fibroid uterus. For comparison on the right is a normal size small uterus, so you can see the difference in size. Uh, the bottom left-hand corner is the fibroid, and the bottom right-hand corner is the line of resection at the top of the vault after the surgery. My last case is a 45-year-old woman uh, with a BMI of 33. She's never had any children, uh, but she's noted her periods have also been becoming heavier. She's had one episode of very heavy bleeding with her last period and her haemoglobin has been found to be 104. An ultrasound shows thickened endometrium. So management questions. Bleeding severity is high, she's anemic. Her fertility requirements now and in the future, well, she hasn't had any children but she has no plans for that in the future. The cancer risk is quite significant. She's over 40, she has increased BMI, uh, she's always had irregular periods and uh, the endometrium is sick on ultrasound assessment. So she requires a hysteroscopy for further investigation. The patient preference is to do what is needed. This would be a similar picture to what was found on her ultrasound and you can see the endometrium is very thickened in this case with cystic change. At her hysteroscopy, unfortunately, the uterine cavity was filled with a whole lot of uh, irregular tissue, which was quite vascular. Uh, the curetting histopathology on this came back as an endometrial cancer, and she was referred to the gynae-oncology team for hysterectomy. So when do we refer to a specialist? Anytime there's a suspicion of malignancy or hyperplasia, if there's any treatable surgical cause, such as a polyp or fibroid, and any woman who has persistent abnormal bleeding, not responsive to treatment after six months. Here's some references for some future reading if you're interested. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only.
The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.